Hi, my name's Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years' experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way part-time pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you and I hope you enjoy listening to the part-time pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Hey, hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Nick from Part-Time Pilot. We're going to be on episode six of the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School, where we go through the Part-Time Pilot Online Ground School lesson by lesson, giving you the audio version of the ground school so that it's just another way you can consume, another convenient way that you can consume the private pilot content, making it easier more, maybe a little bit more affordable, maybe a little bit more time efficient. Just another way that you can do that and consume it, whether you're walking, running, driving, whatever it is you're doing. If you are driving, make sure you're paying attention. <laughs> but yeah, so if you want to follow along on these lessons and be able to read the lessons, see the diagrams, see the mnemonic devices that we have, the videos and visuals, and then get these podcast episodes before everyone else. So the podcast releases once a week, but our online ground school, I release five into their bonus course every two weeks so that they can kind of be a little bit ahead and have a perk of listening to these ahead of everybody else. So if you want to do that, and then each lesson has a quiz in our online ground school, and then we have practice tests, we have a bunch of downloadable content, bonus content, like our, my new ultimate private pilot test prep book, which I'm working on getting published and selling on Amazon, but you have that PDF download included in your bonus course if you join our online ground school. Anyways, if you want to do that, just go to parttimepilot.com and click on online ground school. So we're in section two of our online ground school and we're on lesson number eight. Section one was just the introduction, which we covered in episode one of the ground school. Just tells you how to use the course and what resources you have and all that stuff. Lesson seven, which we did in the last episode, was on the pedostatic system. So if you haven't listened to that, go check that out. Episode number five. And then today's episode, again, is lesson eight, and it's going to be on the magnetic compass. It's a pretty big topic, so it might take the 30, 45, up to an hour. I want to keep these as short as possible, as short as I can, so that you can consume it. You can digest it a little bit before we move on. You have a week to digest it, again, before we move on. But if we get to lesson nine, it's going to be on transponders. So let's see where we get and let's get started with lesson nine, magnetic compass. So all aircraft are equipped with a magnetic compass simply because the magnetic compass does not rely on aircraft power. It doesn't rely on batteries, vacuums, or pumps. All the compass needs is Earth's magnetic field. You know, you can see those watches that have a compass in it, or maybe you had one as a kid on a whistle or something like that. I remember that. I had a little whistle with a magnetic compass on that I would use and roam around my parents' 
yard. And hopefully Earth's magnetic field is not going anywhere. It's not going to be gone anytime soon. So depending on where you are flying and how you are flying, a compass reading can vary widely due to certain compass errors, which we're going to talk about. And these are the bulk of the content is understanding these errors, these compass errors, and how they affect the reading of the compass in your aircraft and how they affect stuff like planning a flight and things like that. So the first one we want to talk about is called variation. In our discussion about cross-country planning, we will speak, and this is further along in the course, but we're going to speak during that cross-country planning lesson about the differences between a true heading and a magnetic heading, where the difference between the two is called variation. This variation is due to the strength of Earth's magnetic field not being consistent around the globe. Isogonic lines, is what we call them, are drawn on charts and updated regularly with changes in Earth's magnetic field so that we can make the correction for variation depending on where we are flying. So an isogonic line is a line on the globe, like so picture you're looking at a globe and there's a line from one pole to the other pole, and it's gonna curve at different areas around the Earth from one pole to the other pole, and that line represents on that line, the variation is the same. So it's uniform variation on that line. And then to the left or right, the variation is going to change. It's going to be a gradient where the variation gets smaller to one side and larger to the other. Just like you would see an isobar line, which is for barometric pressure, or even like the elevation lines that you see on your chart. On your sectional chart, if you look, you have these elevation lines and every line that you see, it gets higher in elevation and there will be a little label on it telling you that this is this line represents this elevation. And the same thing with an isobar, you have lines on like the map of the United States and that line everywhere on that line has the same pressure. And then you can see when the lines stack really closely together, you can see that it's a high gradient of pressure or if the lines are spaced more apart, then it's a low gradient and the pressure over the earth is changing less and less when you have that low gradient. Anyways, that's a sidebar, but these are the same exact things. These isogonic lines, they just do magnetic variation. And that is, again, it's due to the strength of the earth's magnetic field being inconsistent around the globe. So that's why we call it variation. It varies. The magnetic field varies around the earth, so we call it variation. And if you're in the online ground school and you go to the lesson, we have a picture of the United States and then you can see there's an agonic line, what they call it. And that's where there's no variation. And that cuts about through Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Tennessee, and what is that? Alabama down into the Gulf. So that is where the variation is zero to the east of that. You get a variation of what we call west. And that's a little confusing because we're moving east, but we have a west variation. So it goes up to 5, 10, 15, and then 20 degrees variation up in Maine. So 15 degrees variation in like New York, 10 degree variation in like Pennsylvania, 5 degree variation in South Carolina and Florida, and then again, zero in Alabama. And then if we go west, we have east variation. And again, I know that's confusing, it's kind of backwards but it's just something we're going to have to get used to. And five degree variation is about, it cuts through from Minnesota down to Louisiana. And then 10 degree variation splits like New Mexico and Colorado, the, the east side of Colorado. 
And then we have 15 degrees east variation, which splits through and curves through Montana, Idaho, Nevada, and California. And then we have the tip of Washington State, the very northwest part of the Pacific Northwest, we get 20 up to 20 degrees variation. So you'll see these lines on your sectional chart. They'll be dashed magenta lines, and those are the isogonic lines, and they're going to have either a They'll have a degree number and they'll have an E or a W next to it. And that's whether it's east or it's west. So where I fly in San Diego, it's about 12 or 13 degrees east variation. And you'll want to know that for where you're flying so that you can correct again from true heading to magnetic heading and understand that variation. We'll get to how to make that correction in our later episodes on cross-country planning. But that's the basics of variation. The next error is deviation. So there's another correction that needs to be made when you're actively using your magnetic compass. So variation, when you're flying in a specific area, that air is always going to be the same. But deviation is different. It's going to kind of change depending on what degree you're turning to, what you know compass heading you're turning to, and what is in your aircraft. And I'll, I'll get to why that is. If you were to draw a heading line of, say, 090 degrees from the exact location your aircraft is parked and then correct that true heading to a magnetic heading using the exact isogonic correction and then turn your aircraft to line up perfectly with that magnetic heading, your aircraft compass will probably still not match this value for and that is due to magnetic deviation. So again, these are all errors, right? These are errors in the compass. So what I'm saying is I'm saying if you were to be able to line your aircraft perfectly up with the heading on your magnetic compass that matches the heading corrected for the variation in your area, remember the variation that we just talked about, it would still be wrong because there's an additional error and that's what deviation is. Magnetic deviation is electromagnetic interference caused by electrical systems and emitters, which are like certain metals and electrical systems in and around your aircraft. So. The compass is reading magnetic fields. Almost everything, especially metals and electronic components, puts out a magnetic field of some sort a, or magnetic lines and things like that. Even humans have a little bit of that at small levels. So all this kind of added up in your cockpit is going to cause an error that is significant and something that we want to adjust for. The more electronics you have emitting and operating in the cockpit, the more deviation you're likely to have. The magnetic fields within the aircraft created by these electric systems and metals, they distort the lines of magnetic force being read by the compass. So you get these lines from the poles of the earth, these magnetic field lines. That's what your compass wants to read. It kind of measures that and points towards, you know, true north. It, and, it, and it does that based off where it's being pulled by the magnetic field lines. And when you have these component, electrical components and metals inside your cockpit around your magnetic compass, they're gonna kind of tug on the compass to the left or to the right where it really should be pointing to true north or magnetic north, actually. So it's gonna have a little bit of air because those things in the cockpit are gonna be close enough to it that they're gonna be able to tug on it. And it's gonna, your compass is gonna feel the effects of those little magnetic fields from those little electronics and metals in your aircraft. So fortunately, most aircraft come with what we call a deviation cheat sheet. So again, if you're in the online ground school, you'll be able to see what this looks like. 
it's going to have, usually they have two columns are going to have a four column. They're going to have two rows. They're going to have a four row and that's going to list like the heading. So if you want to turn four, so they'll have north, 30 degrees, 60 degrees, east or 90 degrees, 120, 150, 180, and so on. So if you want to turn for that, then the next row says steer and it lines up. So if you want to turn towards north, and I'm just reading off an example of one of the deviation cheat sheets I have. I think this is from a Cherokee warrior. So it says you, if you want to turn towards north, you have to steer towards north. So for north, there's no error in deviation. But if you want to turn towards 30 degrees, you want to steer for 27. So if you steer for 27, that's actually going to put you on 30 because there's a three degree deviation error. So it tells you what to steer for if you, for what you want. So what you want is up top. So the next one is 60 degrees. So if you want to turn to 60 degrees on your compass, you would look at the row below where it says steer and it says 56 degrees. So if you want 60 degrees, if that's what you actually want your aircraft to be pointed in that direction of 60 degrees magnetic, then you want to, you'd want to steer for and look on your compass for what, where it says 56 degrees, because it's taking into effect that four degrees or that deviation, which change changes depending on which degree you want to turn towards. So for turning towards east, you want 85 and the deviation is five degrees. So it's zero at north and then it increases the most when you're east or west. So it's about five or six degrees deviation when you're going to a direction of east or west. And then it's the least when you are going to a direction of north or south. So there's so again, it, it increases as you get away from pointed towards the poles. That makes sense. And again, you can see this picture in the online ground school. So the FAA written might ask you to find the compass heading and give you a table like the one we just talked about, that deviation table plus a magnetic heading. In this situation, you would simply use the table to convert the magnetic heading on the four row, the, what you want to steer for, into a compass heading, which is on the steer rows of that card. However, they will likely make you do even more work than this and not give you a magnetic heading, but instead give you a diagram of a sectional chart, two locations, wind and true airspeed. And here you would have to use your sectional chart to determine the true course between the two locations, convert the true course to a magnetic course using variation, which we talked about. And they will also have to give you that variation or the variation will be on the chart that they give you on the isogonic line. And then use the wind and true airspeed data to convert your magnetic course to magnetic heading using your E6B. And then you can finally use the deviation card. They want to see that you can use all those skills and tools. But don't worry, if you don't know how to do any of that, we're going to get to that in the cross-country planning. So just sit tight and don't worry about that for now. Just understand the differences between variation and deviation and those definitions. Variation, again is caused by the varying magnetic field lines around the earth so that the magnetic pole from the poles of the earth are different depending on where you are on the earth. And then deviation is caused by the magnetic field lines interrupting or disturbing your compass from reading the earth magnetic field lines from those components in your aircraft, the metal or the electronic components in your aircraft that have their own little 
magnetic fields. Okay, so we're not done with uh, magnetic airs. Again, this is magnetic compasses are great and all because they don't, again, they don't rely on power and all the stuff. But the reason why we use a heading indicator that's vacuum powered instead of a magnetic compass, and we only use the magnetic compass if our heading indicator or vacuum system goes down, is because there's all these errors that we have to deal with and we have to remember, and it is, it's not very user friendly. So the next error I want to talk about is called magnetic dip. So again, the magnetic field lines of Earth also have an effect on your compass whenever you are not in straight and level unaccelerated flight. So when you are in straight and level unaccelerated flight, so straight and level means your wings are level, you're flying straight, straight ahead on, on some sort of heading, and you're not accelerating. So acceleration, most people think that acceleration just means you either speed up or you slow down, which would be a deceleration. But acceleration in physics terms actually means whether you change velocity or you change direction. So we think about it only as a change in velocity, right? You increase, you accelerate, you increase your velocity, you accelerate. But if you turn and change the vector of where you're traveling, the direction, that is also called an acceleration. So we want unaccelerated flight and we want straight and level on our wings. And when you do that, the only errors you're gonna have, you're gonna have the deviation error and you're gonna have the variation error. So that's pretty easy to handle. But as soon as you start accelerating, by either turning left, turning right, slowing down or speeding up. So when you are turning, accelerating or decelerating while traveling east or west, your compass will experience magnetic dip unless you are flying near the equator. So there's a lot of different variables. So again, you have to be traveling east or west and you're not flying near the equator. If you're right near the equator, then you will not experience this. Only in straight and level unaccelerated flight will your compass truly read accurately other than, again, deviation and variation. The amount of magnetic dip and its direction on the compass depends on what latitude and hemisphere you are flying in. So once again, because the variation, because of variation and it changes depending on where we are on the earth, magnetic dip, the effect of magnetic dip also changes where you are on the earth. And as you increase in latitude, that's as you get further away from the equator. So in the northern hemisphere, right, you would have like San Diego would have one latitude and then Washington state where I'm from would have a much higher latitude and then Alaska an even higher latitude as you go up and up. And the magnetic dip gets worse and worse as you go up and up. And it's about equivalent to what latitude you're on depending on where you're turning. So we'll get to that in a sec. I know it's very confusing, so you might want to listen to this one a couple of times, but let's see how we can describe this without any visuals. The compass tends to align itself with a the geomagnetic field. Again, that's the magnetic field we're talking about and dip towards the closest pole. The amount of dip varies depending on how far away the compass is from the pole. At the pole, again, the dip is going to be a maximum of 90 degrees. It's going to, the magnetic field lines are going to pull that compass down as much as possible so that you have a magnetic dip of 90 degrees. At the equator, the dip is negligible or zero degrees. So there's no air for a magnetic dip at the equator. 
Between the equator and pole, the value of dip can be approximated by your latitude. So again, if you're at a latitude of 40 degrees, then your maximum magnetic dip is going to be 40 degrees. And in our online ground school, we show you this image of the earth and we show you the equator and we show all the North Pole and the South Pole. And then we show you these magnetic field lines arching out into space and then coming back to the earth. And you can see the compass aligning with those magnetic field lines and how at the equator it's very negligible. But then at the pole, it tilts more and more and more and more until you get to the pole where it's at a maximum of 90 degrees. So it's a very helpful diagram and visual aid. So go check that out if you're in the online ground school. So while in unaccelerated straight and level flight, again, there is no effect of magnetic dip. When the aircraft is accelerating or decelerating on easterly or westerly heading, there is an effect. Like we said, okay, so we said when we're turning or when we're accelerating or decelerating. So let's first talk about acceleration and deceleration, and then we'll get into what happens when it's turning. So when it's when you're accelerating or decelerating and you're on an easterly or westerly heading, here's the effect of magnetic dip. If you're accelerating, the compass will dip towards the closest pole. So again, if you're in the northern hemisphere, which most of us are probably going to be who are listening to this are going to be in the northern hemisphere. So that the closest pole to us is going to be the North Pole. So if accelerating, the compass is going to dip towards that North Pole. If decelerating, the compass will dip towards the farthest pole. So again, if we're in the Northern Hemisphere, the farthest pole is now the South Pole. So when we decelerate, the compass dips towards the South Pole. When we accelerate, the compass dips towards the North Pole when we're in the Northern Hemisphere. If we're in the Southern Hemisphere, those would be opposite. There is no effect, again, when accelerating or deaccelerating on a heading of north or south. So again, this is only when we're heading east or west. Pilots in the northern hemisphere can remember this by the acronym ANDS or ANDS. And that is accelerate north. So that's the A and the N. Decelerate south. D and S. So ANDS or ANDS. Accelerate north. Decelerate south. And then pilots in the southern hemisphere can use sand, which it's again, it's the opposite. So it's south accelerate, north decelerate. That's sand. If you are for the FA written, you will only, you won't need to know sand, particularly the, the southern hemisphere. I don't even think you need to know ands, but since you're flying and for your check ride and for actual flying, you will want to know and understand ands because you're in the northern hemisphere. So that it's good to know both because then you have a full understanding of what's going on. Now, when the aircraft is turning, there is also an effect. Again, so we talked about when we're not turning, we're straight and level and we're not accelerating, there's no effect of magnetic dip. And then we just said that when we're accelerating or decelerating and we're on an easterly or westerly heading, there is an effect, and that is ANDS. We remember that by the acronym ANDS. And then also when the aircraft is turning, there's going to be an effect for the Northern Hemisphere. So when on a northerly heading and a turn to the east or west is made, magnetic compass will lag behind your actual heading. If the final heading is exactly east or west, then no undershooting of the final heading is required by the pilot. Again, we'll talk about this in more detail so you understand this. The leg shows up as a momentarily false turn in the opposite direction when turning from the north heading. For example, if in the Northern Hemisphere and on a northerly heading and a turn 
left, a left turn is made to the west, the compass will momentarily indicate a turn to the east at first, but as you reach the direct west heading, the air will diminish to zero. So it's going to lag and it's going to indicate a turn in the opposite direction. So we're pointed to the north at zero degrees. We make a left turn. We're going to end up at 270 or directly west. As soon as we turn, our compass is going to be, so our compass is going to start at, at around zero. And as we turn, it's actually going to go to the right a little bit. It's going to go to like 05 or, or 010, 005 or 010 or something like that. It's going to show a turn in the opposite direction. So if you're on your check ride or something, your examiner might ask you something like this. So it's good to know. They might say, hey, why did that compass, you know, turn the opposite direction? Something like that. I don't know. It's kind of real fast uh, to happen. You probably won't even notice it unless you're staring at the compass. So they might not ask it. But still, this is stuff you got to know. And then. So when we're on an easterly or westerly heading and a turn to the north is made. So previously we were on a northerly heading and we turned to the east or west. Now we're on an east or west heading and we turn to the north. The magnetic compass again is going to lag behind the actual heading. The magnitude of the leg is going to be approximately equal to the aircraft's current latitude. So that's what we talked about. If you're flying at a latitude of 40 degrees and you, you're traveling east or west and you turn to the north, then it's going to lag behind 40 degrees until you're straight and level on your north. So if the final heading is exactly north, then the pilot should undershoot the final heading by the amount equal to the aircraft's current latitude. So what does that mean? What does undershoot mean? Let me do an example, and then I'll try to explain a little bit more. So for example, if in the northern hemisphere at a latitude of 30 degrees north, and on an easterly or westerly heading turning to a final heading of exactly north, the pilot will need to undershoot the exact north heading by 30 degrees to roll out on the correct heading. So as you turn, let's say we're traveling directly west, so we're on 270 and we make a right turn. Our compass starts at 270, and as we turn to the right, we should see it go 275, 280, 285, 29, all the way to a direct north heading of zero. That's what the nose of our aircraft is doing. And we would want our aircraft or our compass to do the same thing, but it doesn't. It lags behind. So when you when your nose is turning from 270, let's say you get to three, your nose gets to 300, because the leg is 30 degrees, because you're at a 30 degree latitude, your compass is going to read 270. So by the time you get your nose gets to zero or direct north your compass is going to still read 330. So this is why you have to know this stuff. So if you're using your compass to turn from east or west to north, you have to know that you have, it's going to lag behind your equal to about the latitude you're at. So instead of turning out of rolling out of your turn, when you see the compass hit zero, you're going to undershoot that and you're going to roll out er, like you're not really rolling out early because really your nose is pointing to the north. But on the compass, you're going to roll out when the compass says 330, 30 degrees before true north or of 360 or zero. So now for on a southerly heading. So we just talked about when we're on either a north heading and we turn to the east or west or we're on an east west and we turn to the north. Now let's go. We're on a southerly heading. So we're pointed to the south. And we turn to the east or west. The magnetic compass where before it lagged is now going to lead ahead of the actual heading. 
So if the final heading is exactly, again, east or west, then no overshooting. We undershoot last time. Now we're going to overshoot. But if your final heading is directly east or west, you don't need any overshooting of the final heading. The lead will show up as a correct turn, but at a faster rate than is actually occurring. So remember when we were on a northerly heading and we turned to the east or west, let's say we, we turned to the left towards the west that leg would show up as a turn in the opposite direction. So our compass would actually look like we're going to the right or going to like 005 or 010 rather than going 355 or 350. So this is the opposite. So we're on a southern, when we are on a southerly heading and a turn to the, let's say the west is made. So we're going to turn to the right. We're heading south and we turn to the right. It's actually going to, instead of leg and show a turn in the opposite direction, it's actually going to lead and it's going to show a quicker turn in the opposite direction. So you might turn from a heading of 180 and your nose is gets to 175 right at the beginning. Your compass might show like 150 already and you might be, oh, wow, I'm turning really fast. But really, it's not. And again, if you're ending up at a direct east or west heading, then it's not that big deal. Again, you probably won't even notice that because you probably won't have your eyes glued to the compass. But again, it's good to know uh, so you can answer any questions you might get from your examiner. And then if we're on an easterly or westerly heading and a turn to the south is made, then the, the magnet, is, again, is going to lead the actual heading. And this time, the magnitude of the lead is approximately equal to the aircraft's latitude. Same thing as before. So if we're at a latitude of 40, it's going to lead by 40 degrees. And if the final heading is exactly south, then the pilot is going to have to overshoot. We undershooted before when we were heading to directly north. Now we're going to overshoot when we're heading to the south. And again, this is all for the northern hemisphere. It would flip-flop if you were in the southern hemisphere. So what does it mean to overshoot the final heading? Again, by the amount equal to your aircraft's current latitude. Let's do an example, and then maybe I'll explain it. So if in the northern hemisphere at a latitude of 30 degrees north, and on an easterly or westerly heading, and you're turning to a final heading of exactly south, the pilot will need to overshoot the exact south heading of 180 by 30 degrees to roll out on the correct heading. So let's say we are traveling to the west. So we're traveling 270, and we want to turn to the direct south of 180. So it's a left turn. So we make that left turn, and our compass is going to lead us. And if we're at a latitude, we're flying around at a latitude of 30 degrees, and we make that left turn, it's going to lead by 30 degrees so that when the nose of our aircraft is actually at like 280. So as we turn from 270 to the left, and if our no when our nose gets to like 260, our magnetic compass is actually going to lead that by 30 degrees. And since we're going to 180, a lead means it's going to be ahead of the turn. So instead of 260, it, the compass says we're already at 230. So the compass is going to read direct south or 180 way before our nose is actually directly south. So it's going to read 180 when our nose is actually 210, again, because of that 30 degrees, because we're flying at a latitude of 30 degrees. So what you want to do is you want to actually roll out of your turn because you know that it's going to lead when, that, when your compass says 150. So 30 degrees past where you actually want to be because you know the compass is leading you. So when the compass is 150 and you turn out, you're actually really turning out at 180 or directly south. 
I know this is a lot. You're just going to have to listen to this a few times. You're going to have to read through it in the ground school and look at the visuals and watch some of the videos. We also talked about this in a live video where I kind of drew on a whiteboard. That could be really helpful. And again, those all our live lessons and our live Q&As that we have every week, those are in your bonus course, your bonus, your online ground school bonus downloads and video vault. So we keep all our live, live lesson recordings in there. So go check out the one on compass errors and stuff like that so that you can maybe get a visual on that as well. You're going to need to consume this topic multiple times. That's how I did it. That's how every student I know. No one just picks this up the first time. It's confusing. But there are some acronyms and some mnemonic devices to help us. We had ANS and SAND for the magnetic dip above uh, when we were accelerating or decelerating. And now for our turning air, we can use the acronym UNOS help remember the phenomenon and that's undershoot north and overshoot south so again when we're turning to the north we want to undershoot it what it what it says on our compass when we're turning to the south we want to overshoot what it says on our compass by the amount equal to the latitude we are flying at. and the opposite is true in the southern hemisphere again but most of us are flying in the northern hemisphere so we're gonna sort of just focus on that now, the last caveat, and we have a visual of this that depicts this really, really well in the lesson on the online ground school, is that, well, what happens if I'm not turning directly north? What if I'm turning, instead of to 360, I'm turning to 330? Like, I'm not always going to be turning to directly north or directly south. And that's a great question. So let's do the example where we're at a latitude of 30 degrees. So that is going to be our maximum magnetic dip lead or lag, depending on whether we're turning to the north, which would be a lag, or we're turning to the south, which would be a lead. That's going to be the maximum. And the maximum occurs when we turn to a true north or true south heading. So in between, if we turn from the west to, say, we make a 30-degree turn from the west to the north, 30 degrees, so we go from 270 to 300, it's not going to be that maximum number of 30. It's going to be a fraction of that. And you can distribute it up evenly. It's, it's a linear change. So there's 90 degrees from west to north, 270 to 360. Every 30 degrees, that's a third of, of the turn towards true north, right? So 300, you've done a third of your turn to two north. 330, you've done two thirds of your turn. And then at 360, you've done three thirds or the full turn. So if your maximum amount is 30 degrees, like when you're at a 30 degree latitude, you just take two thirds of that or one third of that, do a linear interpolation when you're turning to those headings that are in between west and true and north. So for example, we're at a latitude of 30 degrees, so our maximum magnetic dip is going to be 30 degrees. If we turn from the west to 300, that's a third of the way to true north. So we're going to use a third of the maximum amount of magnetic dip of 30, which is a third of 30 is 10. So we can expect a leg of 10 degrees when we turn from the west to 300. And then for 330, it's two thirds of the way to true north. And again, this is best visualized in this picture in the online ground school. But again, 330 is two thirds of the way. So two thirds of 
the maximum, which is 30 degrees, because again, we're at a latitude of 30 degrees, is going to be 20 degrees. So when we turn from west to 330, we want, we're going to understand the magnetic dip is going to lag 20 degrees. So we're going to undershoot by 20 degrees. And then in the south, same thing. A turn from the east or west to, to directly south. If we're at a latitude of 30 degrees, let's say for this example, we're at a latitude of 20 degrees. So that latitude of 20 degrees is going to be our maximum. And the maximum occurs when we turn directly south. So if we turn from the east to directly south, it's going to lead by 20 degrees, that maximum number. So we're going to overshoot by 20 degrees. But let's say we turn from the east and we just go to, so the east is 090 and the south is 180. So again, 90 degrees between them. If we go to 120, that's just 30 degrees away from me. So again, we're a third of the way to directly south. So a third of 20 degrees, a third of that maximum number. Again, 20 is our maximum because we're at a latitude of 20 in this example. Before we were at a latitude of 30 degrees. So our maximum was 30 degrees. Now, so a third of 20 degrees is about a little less than seven degrees. So we're going to want to know that a turn from east or 090 to 120 would mean that we would have a lead of about seven degrees and we would want to overshoot our compass reading by seven degrees. If we turn from east of 090 to 150, that would be two thirds of the way to directly south and we would do two thirds of 20, our maximum 20, which would be about 14 degrees. And then if we turn directly south, we would do our maximum of 20 degrees, we'd overshoot by 20 degrees. Okay, so I hope that made sense. Again, this is a topic that you're going to have to consume multiple ways. I recommend reading it, listening to it, and then watching it, getting some visuals and even writing some notes about it. When you consume things in different types of content, different types of media, like audio, video, or written word, you your brain works differently in each way. So you're able to fully comprehend it a little bit better each time you listen to it differently. That's why we started this podcast. That's why we have written lessons. That's why we have visual aids. And that's why we have videos and then the quizzes to, to back it up. So if you're you're listening along, you're going through this, go ahead and take the quiz for this lesson, lesson nine. Now, I think this took about, I'm not really sure, but I think, I think we're around 40 minutes. So I'm going to call it quits on episode six. And then next week, we're going to get into lesson nine, which is going to be on transponders. And then we may even get to transponders isn't a super long uh, lesson. So then we'll get into GPS, which is lesson 10, and we'll move on from there. So thank you guys for listening. If you're in the ground school, go do that quiz. Go check out those visuals are very important. And then also go check out the live session we did where I discuss magnetic errors. That'll be helpful because I, again, I draw on the whiteboard. So go check out those resources. We have all the resources here for you. Go check those out, take the quiz. And even if, if you don't get it again, you're going to, this is one of those topics you're going to have to consume multiple times. So come back and re-listen and you can always, always reach out and ask me questions team at parttimepilot.com. I'm always available to answer your guys' questions, whether or not you're in the online ground school or not. And then we also have a great Facebook group. It is private to only those of the online ground school, but it, so if you're in the online ground school, go post in the Facebook group. And then I will also pick, I like to pick a few questions that I get through the week to teach in our lives that we do every Monday. And again, those lives are exclusive to 
members of the online ground school. Sometimes I will share that those live lessons with everybody if I think it's a topic everyone might want to hear. But most of them are just exclusive to members of the online ground school. Anyways, that that's a little spiel. Thanks again for listening and I'll catch you guys next week. All right. Hey guys, it's Nick. I want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there. You might be a student pilot that is, you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times. And then now after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time, fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with atc for bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft when this happens, if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gain is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft they start making mistakes and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again and they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family they finally say you know what this has to stop we can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress you know and they end up quitting now so how do we avoid that well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience 
of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I just say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working. So most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. We have kids, we have family, we have school. We have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training. And most of these flight trainings and ground trainings are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic. Again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons. You can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.